1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, I'm delighted to welcome on a special guest, Pekka Havisto, Finland's foreign minister since 2019. The minister has a long and distinguished career in Finnish politics. He's previously also been development minister, party leader of Finland's Greens. As Foreign Minister, he's obviously at the forefront of Finnish foreign policy, including towards the Ukraine war and Russia. But he has a lot of other international experience too. He chaired the UN Environment Programme's Task Force on the Environmental Impact of Wars in the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Liberia, Israel, Palestine and Sudan. He's also worked as the European Union Special Representative for Sudan and Darfur and as Special Advisor for the UN in the Darfur peace process. As Foreign Minister, he served as Representative of the EU on several trips to Ethiopia. Minister, welcome on. Thank you very much indeed for joining.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So I hope that today we'll have quite a wide-ranging discussion touching on several of the crises that you've worked on in the past, particularly in the Horn of Africa. But we'll start with the Ukraine war, Russia's invasion of its neighbour, what that means for Europe, for European security. And we'll talk in a moment about Finland's application for NATO membership. But could I start with a more general question? Just in the past few days, we've had these missiles hit Poland, a NATO member. So NATO capitals, for the most part, responded cautiously. They avoided jumping to premature conclusions about where the missiles came from. And now Polish government, NATO leaders, including US President Joe Biden, say the missiles were likely fired by Ukrainians in defense though of course noting that they wouldn't have been fired had Russia not been bombarding Ukraine. Since February when Russia launched its full-scale invasion NATO capitals have mostly struck a balance between on the one hand supporting Ukraine supplying weapons funds to help Ukraine defend itself and that support has been critical. So supporting Ukraine while at the same time trying to avoid too high a risk of escalation into direct war between NATO and Russia. Do you think, I mean, particularly in the light of the strikes in Poland, do you think that balance is getting harder to navigate the longer the war continues?
0: Thank you. Thank you for the question. And let me put a couple of issues at the table. First, of course, the first remark is always for us who are negotiating the peace and peace builders is that why don't we negotiate in the current situation. And my answer always is that we tried to negotiate a very long time with the Minsk agreements. And despite of those negotiations, which actually Russia was also committed to the Minsk agreements, the attack happened, unfortunately, 24th of uh, February this year. And then, of course, during the first days of the attack, we were scared that the whole government will collapse in Kiev. We were scared that uh, there's a Russian plan to hijack the country or sideline the, the government uh, President Zelensky and, and put some kind of puppet government for the country of fifty million people. And luckily this didn't happen. There was a strong resistance of uh, First Ukrainians and they asked also our support, military support, humanitarian support, development support to Ukraine and this is what we are now giving. I'm looking at this conflict actually in the light of the UN Charter Article fifty one Country has been attacked. Its sovereignty has been violated. Country has the right to defend themselves. And they have right to ask help from the others for defending themselves until UN Security Council solves the problem. And now we are at that stage. Ukraine is defending themselves. We are helping them until UN Security Council solves the problem. And we all know that we have a broken Uh, architecture, security architecture, because UN Security Council is paralyzed because of Russia is is permanent member of the Security Council. This is how I see the current situation. And we, of course, have to continue to support Ukraine as long as it's needed, because that's a country uh, under attack.
1: We'll come in a moment to when it might be time for the mediation that you talked about. But before that, I mean, what do you make of the danger of President Putin using nuclear weapons I and mean, from back in february just before russia's full-scale invasion he's sort of made barely veiled threats to use nuclear weapons against anyone helping ukraine although he doesn't define very clearly what helping ukraine means so far obviously he hasn't done that but how do you assess the risk that if russian forces keep losing ground president putin might be tempted to use a nuclear weapon not because it serves a military purpose in itself but because it might be a sort of last throw over the dice to deter further Western support for Ukraine?
0: Well, from the, this is a very crucial question because from the very beginning of this conflict, we have heard this kind of loose talking about the unconventional uh, weapons, might it be nuclear weapons or sometimes chemical weapons, which of course chemical weapons Russia has been using in Syria. So we have some evidence on that. And it's not only, of course, the leadership of Russia But we sometimes see in the public opinion in Russia this kind of uh, argumentation that why are we taking hits uh, from Ukrainians when we have weapons? Why don't we use these weapons? So the nationalistic feelings are in the air in in this kind of conflict very easily. And and people start to argue that, that instead of losing the war, we should do this and this and this. And this is putting also certain pressure to the Russian government currently. But of course, the risk of using the nuclear weapons uh, is there. Uh, Russia has been lowering the threshold by developing these tactical nuclear weapons. It has a storage of those. But any use of nuclear weapons, of course, would escalate this crisis totally to the new level. And that's, I think, why international community, including China, President Xi's comments in Bali, Where I think, very remarkable because also China is recognizing that the nuclear risk is there. I think it's very important that we keep this risk in our risk catalogue, so to say, and remind Russia all the time what would it mean if they use this type of dangerous weapons.
1: And keeping it in the risk catalogue, what does that mean? I mean, do you think there's anything more that NATO governments or others can do to reduce the danger without actually cutting down on support for Ukraine? Because on the one hand, of course, what Moscow wants is that it's high in the calculations of Western governments, and yet there's a danger in allowing the Kremlin to use an, in essence, nuclear blackmail.
0: I think one important part of this nuclear risk issue is that luckily, US has all the time been, of course, of the opinion that there should be continued talks on nuclear issues also between the superpowers, between the US and Russia. This is definitely also what Russia wants, so to say, solve these big global problems with the United States. And I I think that's the right channel to to address this type of risks. But of course, it's uh, when asking how the nuclear threat is influencing, it's, for example, influenced to Finland, Sweden, when we applied our NATO membership, because when we analysed what kind of risks can this new situation include to countries bordering Russia? We, of course, also mentioned that this kind of loose talk about the nuclear risks or chemical risks has to be taken seriously. And when we analyze our own defense capabilities, we are ready to address many conventional risks and, and we have a strong militaries and so forth. But we are quite uh, weak to addressing this kind of unconventional risks and unconventional weapons. And there we need cooperation, for example, for Finland and Sweden. That's one of the reasons why we applied NATO membership.
1: And Minister, you mentioned earlier the importance of diplomacy, in particular between the US and Russia on the nuclear question. And diplomacy has continued through what has been a very bitter war. So in the early months, there were these direct talks between Russians and Ukrainians that appear to have gone some way in at least Thinking through what a settlement, at least laying out some ideas about what a settlement might entail. Those fell apart after the revelations of atrocities by Russian forces in Bucha, this Kiev suburb. Uh, then there was the Turkey UN brokered deal to get Ukrainian grain out of the Black Sea ports, very important. We've had talks about access to the Zaporizhia nuclear site, prisoner exchanges, and as you say, there have been these talks between top US officials and their Russian counterparts seemingly mostly about managing nuclear risks. So warning Russia of the consequences of using nuclear weapons. But there's also been this idea and even some of the things that the US Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, has said that suggests that the US was maybe not trying to push Ukraine to the negotiating table, but at least push Kiev to say that it was open to talks. This idea that maybe if front lines settle over the winter, now might be time to open up talks between Ukraine and Russia. Now, those comments will walk back by other U.S. officials, but there is this sort of idea out there. But presumably, right now, that would be a hard sell. I mean, Ukraine just having recaptured Kherson, the city in the south. Do you think we'll get any time soon to a stage where there are the right conditions for talks? And what would those conditions look like? Ukraine's partners, of course, say nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. But will that remain the guiding principle the longer the war continues?
0: That's an interesting question. And you're reminded of the the fact that in the beginning of the conflict, countries like Turkey tabled some proposals for agreements and and, and peace deals and so forth. But due to the atrocities in Bhutia and other issues, the mood, of course, in Ukraine also turned very bitter and and, uh, for for any kinds of talks. Uh, Luckily, during the conflict, there had, has been at least three kinds of talks ongoing. One is, of course, the grain trade, which now looks to continue. And it's an important issue for uh, Ukraine, but also an important issue for, for Russia. And it's, it's we really have to congratulate also both the UN and, and Turkey for facilitating the grain trade deal. It's, it's important not only with the grain, of course, but with the fertilizers and so forth to avoid the the global impacts of this war to, to avoid the food crisis uh, globally particularly on the african continent then the second issue is the saborica nuclear power plant and i really admire the work by the iaea and and its leadership uh, you know, mr mr grossi who is doing excellent work and, and really travelling to to the region with his delegation crossing the the border lines and and, and so forth to reach reach the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant. And I, I think this is very important that we keep keep in mind that uh, traditional use of nuclear power is also now a risky issue during this conflict. And the third negotiation channel, a little bit also to my surprise, has been the, the exchange of the prisoners, exchange of the war prisoners, because it seems to be ongoing, even with the Asov brigade and, and so forth. And and when when you ask who is facilitating the, this, uh, there might be answers that Saudi Arabia has a role and, and some oligarchs have <laughs> roles there and so forth. It's not uh, done, so to say, officially by the International Red Cross or something like that, which should probably be the right channel. But uh, but it's good that it's working and it has been working. So this just shows that at least on these three issues, grain trade, uh, nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia and uh, exchange of the prisoners, negotiation channels are working. And this gives some light in the end of the tunnel that that also hopefully on other issues, the negotiations could be possible.
1: Do you see that potentially those conditions could arise anytime soon? For now, it appears that Ukraine has the upper hand on the battlefield, very little incentive at the moment for Ukraine to want to compromise, understandably, over any of its territory. And yet it also seems quite hard to imagine Russia giving up Crimea, for example, or even parts of the east that it's currently occupying?
0: Well, first of all, uh, what President Zelensky did in Bali, he tabled the 10 conditions for peace. And this is, of course, the sovereignty of the country getting the the occupied areas back and so forth. And I could see the immediate reaction by Foreign Minister Lavrov denying those conditions by Ukraine. But I think we have to support Ukraine at this moment. Uh, Ukraine has the uh, moral upper hand, of course, in this conflict, and and also uh, they have been very sufficient in in uh, uh, fighting back the Russian invasion and and so forth. But we also have to remember that the this is a very bitter war, in the way that uh, a lot of human rights violations have been ongoing, but also this attack against civilians and against the infrastructure of uh, Ukraine. Just now, in mid uh, uh, November, there were news that that probably. Uh, 10 million people out of 40 million are out of electricity, out of heating, due to the targeting of of electricity networks and and heating systems and so forth. This is a war where really the ordinary people are victims. And of course, these are, we can say these are war crimes. This has to be investigated and so forth. Ordinary people shouldn't be targeted like this. And, And this makes, of course, also the negotiations very complicated because we are dealing probably with very serious war crimes and and we we have to get the perpetrators responsible for this and we have to get the compensation from Russia to all the destruction that has happened in in Ukraine. And and this makes also the peace talks every day more and more complicated.
1: Could I ask a, a broader question about sort of European security? You've talked about, of course, about Finland's application for NATO Uh, Some of the reasons for that, obviously, Finnish public opinion has swung now very firmly behind Finland joining NATO, which is new and is really something that owes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But beyond the Finnish and Swedish membership, how does Europe prepare for a future alongside a Russia that has just invaded, tried to occupy its neighbour? Does the relationship with former Soviet bloc countries, Ukraine itself, countries in the South Caucasus, others. There's also the question of energy dependence. There's the question of NATO, but also the OSC, which Russia is a part of. How do you see the war impacting some of these questions in the years ahead?
0: There are, of course, many components uh, in in European security architecture. And, And let me first mention that, of course, first of all, NATO has been keeping its role defending the NATO countries in this conflict. And luckily, there has not been any direct attack from Russia against NATO, NATO countries, because NATO has, a, of course, a common security, common defense. And this would this would mean immediately a direct conflict between Russia and, and NATO. It's important that we can avoid that. Secondly, European Union has been actually the body uh, who has been really mobilizing not only humanitarian and, and development aid to Ukraine, and monetary support to Ukraine, but also now the weapons and, and materials to Ukraine. And European Union has been very effective in its coordination, of course, together with the US, UK. This, what has happened, Finland has, is just now sending the tenth package of military support to Ukraine. It just shows how, how active this support has been. And of course, European Union has also its own paragraph the, the, of mutual assistance clause to Article 42.7. It has not been Used. So often, I think only time was, was when there was terrorist attacks in Paris, but, but somehow now at this moment, it's in people's minds much more stronger than, than earlier. So if any European Union member state will be attacked, it's not only a question of NATO, if you are a NATO member, but also the European Union defense is there. Then comes the very complicated questions of the OSCE and, and of course the Council of Europe, where Russia is member, has been member. And Finland will chair 2025 in the OEC. We were thinking that we will celebrate the nice uh, creation of the Helsinki Agreement, 1975, 50 years celebration. And, and now we are in a, in a Europe where we definitely have to redefine the whole security architecture, actually. And I, I think it's very important that we go back to the principles. There shouldn't be any spares of influence accepted. In Europe, independence of the countries, sovereignty of the countries, territorial integrity of the countries should be respected and countries should have the free choice whether they are allied or neutral countries and so forth. This is particularly the question of the uh, Ukraine in the future. But we are at the stage where the old truths are no more there. And the new situation has not yet been created. We are somewhere in between. And of course, the war in Ukraine will have a major, major implication to this. But also, actually, when you look at areas like Central Asia, where countries, Kazakhstan and others, are taking certain distance to what Russia is doing, they are taking refugees from Russia or, or people who are denying to go to military service in Russia and so forth. So this means also that Russia is more isolated than earlier due to its attack against Ukraine.
1: Yeah, maybe a recalibration due not only to the invasion itself, to the fact Russia invaded, but also to the fact that Russia's military has simply proven less capable than many people assumed it was, that it hasn't been able to prevail. Minister, do you think, I mean, obviously a lot depends on what happens in Ukraine, but how would you rate prospects for relations between Western capitals and the Kremlin evolving or even improving over time or Right now, is that just hard to envisage?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, because actually, when being involved in many peace processes, uh, always we say that um, first we have to build the trust, and then we can go on with the peace process. And I was in one, one of those uh, meetings or roundtables when we discussed about the Russia and the Western and Russia and Ukraine, and, and somebody asked, how can you build the peace without trust? And I started to think uh, even our own history of Finland, actually, uh, Second World War, the Winter War and the Continuation War, we were fighting, but we also came to the moment when we had to make a, a peace agreement. And actually, that was a moment when we made a peace agreement without trust. We were very much afraid in Finland that Soviet Union will occupy Finland despite of the peace agreement. There were people who were hiding arms. Just in case that the occupation will happen and, and so forth. And the trust was built only step by step. And it took years before the trust was built. And I, I think we are in this kind of challenge with Russia and between Russia and West that we have to build a peace without trust. And then it has to be a system where mutually you do steps all the time to, to, to create the trust. But, but probably the trust will be reached quite slowly. And, and then uh, of course this, comes back to our analysis of Russia itself and, and what is the soul of Russia and what is the identity of Russia. And, and I know that there are people who say that Russia is always the same, it's always imperial, it's always this, it's always a negative factor in Europe. And then I'm looking back to last 100 years and we have had a, a chart time and then Lenin and then Stalin and then Ruchov and then Brezhnev and, and, and then of course, Gorbachev and and, and Yeltsin, and then Putin. It has been changing all the time, actually, and also the Russian attitude towards the West. Ruchev period was different from Stalin's and so forth. Brezhnev was more old school. Then came uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, and then, uh, uh, unfortunately, what Putin has done has been very negative to the Russian-European uh, relations. Uh, but we can see that the change and uh, making the difference is possible. On, on the Russian relations. And I, I think we, can, we could rely also when we look at the future that changes will happen, sometimes negative changes, but also sometimes positive changes vis a vis Russia.
1: Minister, could I ask you to put your peacemaking hat on for a moment, or uh, your previous experience as a peace envoy? You talked about the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which Russia is still part of. Russia, obviously, also on the Security Council, as you said. And in fact, some. Business on the Security Council has continued despite the breakdown in relations between Russia and Western governments. They have been able to agree on rolling over UN peacekeeping mandates, for example. So in some ways, multilateral diplomacy does continue to muddle along. There are several crises around the world where it's quite hard to see peace or a peace process moving forward without some degree of Russian acquiescence, if not uh, support. So Nagorno-Karabakh, of course, where Russian peacekeepers sort of positioned along front lines. Libya, where Russia's involved on one side. Syria, of course, there are nuclear talks. Russia was part of those, even though for now the talks have stopped. Do you think in the months ahead, there's ways to compartmentalize or keep the bitterness over the Ukraine war out of some of those processes of keeping Russia engaged in them?
0: I think there are still issues where we have to have a uh, Russia uh, engaged and, and before going to to peace processes i just want to mention the climate and environment issue if you really have to and as we have to fight the climate change we we need also russia on board and i i feel a little bit nostalgic when i'm thinking of the arctic council meeting in reykjavik uh, a little bit more than 1 year ago when you know the eight uh, arctic ministers including Secretary Blinken and, and Foreign Minister Lavrov were sitting at the same, almost like a kitchen table and talking about the environmental problems in, in, Ru- in Arctic areas and, and climate change. And then Foreign Minister Lavrov saying that finally, Russian scientists accept that climate change exists. And, and we, we asked how this has happened in Russia. And he said when the permafrost is melting and the gas pipelines are collapsing and the oil pipelines are collapsing in the Arctic area in Russia, now we have a economic damage. Coming from the climate change. So we have to do something. And, and in the same manner, he spoke about the lifting of the nuclear waste around the Novaya Assembly that was dumped there, sixties, seventies, and that they have to lift those. And everybody was like, yes, this, this has to happen. And finally, <laughs> finally, we have Russia on board. And I have to say that we, we couldn't enjoy this, this new period too long. But I'm still thinking that that has to be there, you know, when we are addressing the global issues in the future. Russia has its responsibilities and it has to take these responsibilities seriously. But in the same way, I'm thinking of of Northern Africa, Sahel area, Libya, where even the very uh, damaging Wagner presence is there. Or Syria, or as you said, Nagorno-Karabakh. We, we, we need Russia to those peace processes. And even, I want to mention the the future of Belarus. Actually, Belarus is now... Hijacked by by Russia, to this war and and so forth. And of course, our vision of the future of Belarus is that it should be a democratic country, free to make the choices between uh, the east and east and west, and make its own deals and others. I'm sure that this is something that the people in Belarus are looking for in the in the future. All all these issues are, of course, issues where Russia is also involved, and not to speak about even Afghanistan and so forth. It's uh, we, we might in some cases even have common goals, you know, when we look at the, the uh, damage that Taliban has been doing in Afghanistan and so forth, I, I think we are not only concerned in the West, uh, India is concerned, but also Russia is concerned about that.
1: Could I ask one more about Ukraine before we move to the horn? And that's on the global impact of the war. We've talked about it on this podcast uh, many times that the reaction in much of the world to the war uh, has been quite mixed, despite these strong votes in support of Ukraine at the UN General Assembly. Obviously, part of that is that many countries in the global south have interests in keeping ties with Russia open, whether it's for oil, or grain, fertilizer, or even weapons. But it does seem that much of the world's response is clouded to some degree by the fact that leaders in other parts of the world don't want to be lectured by Western capitals about what they should be outraged about, even if they're sympathetic to. Ukraine's plight to the violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Do you think that's a fair reading, that this is, to some degree, a moment of inflection in relations between Western capitals and the rest of the world?
0: I think that's a real problem that we are dealing with. And my feeling is that if we are speaking about the war or how Ukraine can win, it has to have a support not only from the West, but also from the global South. And Global South also has the responsibility to react to this situation. We had a very interesting meeting of uh, Nordic foreign ministers and Africa foreign ministers in Helsinki in this June. And uh, we talked a lot about this uh, voting in the UN and in the General Assembly and many countries abstaining and and those who were abstaining said that they support the peace so they don't want to take any side. And we got a little bit angry as uh, Nordic ministers. We said that, hey, when you had apartheid in South Africa, we didn't just sit at the fence. We, we took a position to to support people who were fighting the apartheid. Uh, when you had colonialism in, in Africa, we took a stand as Nordic ministers to, to support your fight against colonialism. Now, when we have a problem in Europe, a violation of the key UN rules, why well you are abstaining, why well you are being silent and so forth. I have to say that it was a very heated debate, but a very good debate. And I'm sure that those who participated will remember it all their lives. It was a good debate. But of course, we see that, uh, for example, on the African continent, yes, it's the energy, it's the food security issues, and it's even the climate change, all, all those that are more acute. Maybe the war in Ukraine looks to be far away. And of course, we have a little bit this competition of the narratives. Uh, and it's not only Russian narrative, it's, it's also, I have to say, Chinese narrative. And I have been sometimes following the market speech or elevator speech of Chinese colleagues who said, look, guys, the West said to us that we have a overpopulation and we cannot cope with that, and that we are we, are, we will, uh, the, the overpopulation and growth of the population will damage permanently the, the development of China. And we managed to do that. You know, we controlled our population growth and we did it despite of what West said. Then the West said that we cannot manage with our economy. Look what we have done. You know, look, look what has happened in China. We are on the growth path. And then now they are saying that we cannot solve our uh, environmental problems. And look what we are doing. We are doing the solar panels and, and, uh, <laughs> wind generators, even with a cheaper price than the West. So buy, buy those from us. So that's a quite good market speech, I have to say. And we have to be better on that speech and, and marketing our model, our democratic model, our technological models and so forth. And I think many of, of my African friends in, in Sudan, they say that, oh, the Cold War time was very, golden time for Sudan and a good time. And I asked, what was so good in the Cold War times?" They said, well, first we went to Washington, but if Washington didn't agree with us, then we went to Moscow. So we put you to compete. But then when the uh, Cold War ended, Russia disappeared and the West disappeared. But luckily, China stayed. <laughs> and, and I think that's, uh, that's a challenge. And I think we have to take this challenge very seriously.
1: It's interesting watching Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in his you know, obviously disingenuous, his communication, but he's used language that he knows will resonate in different parts of the the world. And as you say, the Chinese have their own story. You compare that in some cases. One thing is the Nordic foreign ministers getting together with their African counterparts. Another thing is being lectured in the Global South from London or Paris, of course. I mean, that has a different sound to it. And there has been this quite clumsy language in places, this sort of tone deafness to the concerns of the Global South, the sort of garden and jungle comments as well, which probably unhelpful. But how much do you think, Minister, it's, it's about the, the narrative and changing the language? And how much do you think it's actually about concrete policies that would need to change? Policies related to debt relief, policies related to uh, the amount of money that's on the table for climate adaptation. How much is it a problem of of narrative, in other words, and how much is it that there's genuine upset in parts of the world about the the relationship between North and South?
0: Sometimes it's about the words. And as you rightly said, if you uh, go to the garden jungle type of language, which might be humiliating and so forth, of course, you are not making the best market speech at that moment. And also that uh, the Western Europe has a colonial past, is a fact, and 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 that is remembered in many African countries. So, so partly it's about the words, partly it's about the realities of the history. But I think the majority is what do we do now, and how do we go on from now? On. And and then it's really about the concrete projects. It's about the climate change. What can we do with the supporting, uh, for example, African countries with the newest technologies? It's also about the global gateway as a, uh, the European proposal as a, as a investing. Uh, investing to to Africa and so forth. Uh, I think we could do better, and and we could also coordinate our actions to to better. And also, as as European Union, we shouldn't have this colonial phase or phase uh, coming from the past. But this should be something new, something new that we can do together uh, with with all the EU countries.
1: So, could we move then to the Horn of Africa, an area in which you also have a lot of experience? So, we talked on the podcast last week about this secession of hostilities, this Pretoria deal between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan leaders last week. Generally, I think, positive news, although it remains unclear even after military leaders from both sides got together this week in Nairobi. It seems still unclear how they're going to resolve this sort of particularly difficult issue of getting the Eritrean forces, which have been fighting alongside Ethiopian federal forces against Tigrayans, how to get them out of Tigray and how to sequence their withdrawal with Tigrayan disarmament, particularly the Tigrayans handing over heavy weaponry. And it still seems uh, from public statements, particularly from Tigrayans, that there's some disagreement about that. So if you're sitting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has, you know, in essence come out on top of the war, it seems. So he now has to sort of try to be magnanimous with Tigray, while at the same time managing his relations with Eritrean President Esaias Afwerki, who views the Tigrayan leadership, the TPLF, as a threat. I mean, it's an old enemy. How do you sense that Abi can do that?
0: I think there has been many moments, happiness and many moments of frustration during the last years. I, I remember when the peace agreement was signed between uh, Addis Ababa and, and Asmara, and I was thinking that, wow, this, this is historic. This is great. Finally, the countries who are some kind of arch enemies are, are making a peace, and we saw you know, Ethiopians uh, uh businessmen coming to to Asmar. I think this will change also the dynamics now in Eritrea. Eritrea will open up and, and so forth. But all all this did not then happen.
1: It seemed in fact to set the stage for the war in Tigray with the the alliance between Abiy and his eyes.
0: Exactly, exactly. So unfortunately the peace agreement led to a conflict to to a certain extent and then, of course, we followed the conflict, the desperate situation of the clients, the humanitarian disaster there, and so forth. I visited Mecheles, saw it with my own eyes, the, the terrible situation of the civilian population, the atrocities that has happened there, and, and so forth. And, of course, now I, I can only be happy that some kind of agreement has been created. i really thankful, actually, to President Obanjanjo, President Kenyatta, who, who facilitated this agreement. Of course, there are many... Question mark still how the implementation of this will, will happen, how the civilian population will get their rights back in Tigray and, and so forth. But this is, of course, the best that has happened for a while. And, and we have seen at the same time the whole disintegration of Ethiopia or all these other regional conflicts and so forth, which is not, of course, good news for the country itself. Finland has been supporting the national dialogue in the country and, and hopefully that will lead to some positive effects. But the big question mark, of course, still uh, is on Eritrea and Asmara. They probably still have troops on the northern parts of uh, Ethiopia. Will they withdraw? And will there be a final settlement of the border, which should, of course, happen? And that would remain a peaceful border. All these are the big question marks still in this process. But I think so far, this is probably the best situation where we have been for a long time that uh, at least these agreements are at the table, which have been agreed.
1: And Minister, you've been to Asmara several times, met President Isaias. Obviously there's a lot now that's changing in the in the region. If you look back a decade ago, Ethiopia was dominant, powerful, Eritrea really sort of boxed in, and yet now to some degree President Isaias seems less isolated. Obviously relations between Addis and Asmara have improved. There was this tripartite group also involving Somalia's former President Farmaggio, so Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. Whether that will endure with a new president in Somalia is unclear, but generally there's quite a bit changing. What do you think Isaias wants from his relations in the region? I mean, how does he see Eritrea's interest? And is that in any way compatible with wider stability in the Horn?
0: Well, I have definitely been one of those who, even during the Darfur conflict, visited Asmara regularly and and saw the role that uh, Eritrea was playing, active role. They were playing in Sudan and in South Sudan. And now in, in uh, Ethiopia, they have a certain influence to Somalia, as you rightly said. It's a, it's a small country with a lot of influence. And, and of course, the President Isaias' style is, is uh, how to say this kind of very anti-colonial style. He thinks that uh, there are still colonial ties to some of the African countries, and he thinks that these countries should cut those ties and so forth. He's using the language of the freedom fighter, so to say, in uh, and, and, it, at some moment, it's attractive also to some neighbors. It's obvious that Eritrea has played a, a much bigger role in the, in the region than what is their size and, and so forth. But I, I see also some interesting and, and, hopefully positive developments. Of course, Somalia now more peaceful. At the same time, of course, Somalia is facing a lot of uh, challenges with the climate change and degradation of uh, environment and all these issues. But the presidential elections were bringing New mood in, in the country and, and hopefully this is a positive one. We have a quite big Somali community in, in Finland and part of that community is also very active on the peace building and building ties between the different regions in Somalia, which is extremely important. And of course, Sudan, South Sudan gained its independence and, and has been walking a very difficult path to stability. And also Sudan itself is uh, in a challenging moment. It's a very turbulent area. But probably the biggest shock was that the country that was usually considered as a quite stable, Ethiopia, has been now in this deep crisis such a long time. And and, uh, I think the the balancing the situation in Ethiopia will have a positive effect also to to the whole
1: region. Do you think there's ever a a situation where Isaias couldn't coexist with a government in Tigray that is TPLF-dominated?
0: Well, that remains to be seen. Of course, now it's about uh, Addis Abeba and, and Abi to, to take care of their, so to say, foreign re- relations, which includes their neighbor, uh, Eritrea. And of course, uh, uh, it would be, I, I think, one of the conditions of the peace that uh, countries are not influencing over the border to each other's issues, particularly don't do any military activities over the border. But of course, this war... Probably just adds, unfortunately, the bitterness between uh, Eritrea and, and TPLF and uh, the Tigrayans.
1: Minister, you mentioned uh, the Somalia and, and new President Hassan Sheikh coming into power on a platform of reconciliation, really reconciliation between Mogadishu and some of the federal states, the regions whose relations had really deteriorated under President Farmajo. How do you rate the President's chances of reconciliation in Somalia? not just with the federal states, but perhaps more more broadly sort of moving towards some sort of wider political settlement in the country that has been, as you say, is being torn apart by the environmental degradation, but has also suffered this insurgency from Al-Shabaab that's proven resilient for many, many years and very difficult to, to defeat. Well, of course,
0: I, uh, I was uh, many years ago traveling actually in, in Puntland, uh, the areas where the pirates, young pirates were recruited and in the small villages the car stopped and I was probably the first white man that some of the kids saw and they came around the car and uh, asking asking where I'm coming from and who I am and so forth and I, I asked of course that what are you, your plans and then the kids were shouting that we will be pirates in the future and I said well, well, well I think it would be better to go to school or to go to normal work and they said no, no, you know there are no schools, everything is uh, destruction, and, and uh, you, you can choose either to be a refugee or a pirate. That's your choice. But with the, with the piracy, you can earn a lot of money, particularly if you are the first guy to climb the vessels and so forth. And then I said, that well, but it's quite risky. You know, uh, you can be shot, particularly if you are the first one. And they said that the risk is worth of taking. You know, because you get $100,000 if you are the first guy and $50,000 if you are the second guy and so forth. And we had a long, long discussion. And at the same time, our vessel was on the sea, part of the the military operation to fight the pirates and so forth. And I was thinking that probably with a little bit less money, we could do here on the ground something to these kids and these youngsters that they will not be recruited. And I think this is the challenge also for the Somali uh, president, the new president, that how to avoid the Tal Shabaab or other criminal groups, gangs are not recruiting younger people and, and offer better options than what the society and what the country can offer them. And, and I think there it's also our task to support Somalia in the best possible means. And of course, certainly there has to be a DDR programs and others to, to get the armed groups out of the arms and, and back to the normal life and so forth probably some reconciliation has to be be made. But I I think we should now work hand in hand with the Somali government on on these issues.
1: So I'd I'd like to end in a moment with a broader question, but just before we do, could we talk about the decades-old conflict Israel-Palestine? So a new Israeli government, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, looks set to return to power, heading what will be the most right-wing government in Israel's history. I mean, it reflects a right-wing shift in Israel over recent decades. Very few Israeli politicians of any stripe now sort of explicitly support the peace process. It's hard to see with Netanyahu and his coalition in power how annexation doesn't continue, how the two-state solution is becoming further and further out of reach. Palestinian politics is, of course, divided, partly because of international policy towards uh, Hamas and, and most Palestinians from what we understand from talking to people in the West Bank, Gaza, and elsewhere, have really completely lost faith in the peace process. So, I mean, is it time for a new approach? I mean, is it time for a new European policy in particular, that's more sort of rooted in that reality, that's more maybe rooted in trying to look at accountability for some of Israel's policies in the Palestinian areas?
0: Well, I think if somebody asked that what is the best concept for peace, <laughs> peace in the Middle East, uh, I don't have the final answer, but maybe I have some fragments in my mind. First of all, the, the, the issue of the two-state solution, because it's a, uh, it's either you have one state or you have two states. And if you have one state, people should have all their rights. And, and I, I think this is something that is now coming even from some Palestinians that, okay, if two-state solution is dead, then what about one state? And of course, we all know that one state is not so favorable to Israel either because of the big Arab population and, 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 so forth. So also Israel should make their choice what part they will take. But then if we look some new components, of course, the Abraham Accord, Arab countries who made an agreement with Israel, I think that's a new development and probably these countries could work more also on the finding the peaceful solution. And then, Something that is uh, very much in favor is actually taking the environmental component also here to account. It's an area which is suffering uh, both Israel, Palestine of the climate change, of the lack of uh, water, good quality water and, and so forth. And organizations like Ecopies, which is working, actually doing quite a unique work between the Palestine, Israeli and Jordanian civil society, finding a common ground on the environmental issues. I, I think we should use those parts as well probably as a second track initiatives and so forth, to to find a little bit sideways, to find a dialogue between the parties on those issues that are most essential of today. So these are maybe some of my thoughts.
1: You mentioned the Abraham Accords, the normalized relations, improved ties between some Arab governments, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco and Israel. But those governments don't seem to be using their improved relations to take any steps to revive the peace process or even do much to improve Palestinians' lives. So it doesn't seem that fresh impetus is going to come from there or, for that matter, from the US right now. So you don't think there's space for a European approach that tries to introduce some accountability for Israel for its policies towards the Palestinians? Uh,
0: One issue, of course, is what... European Union and the European countries can do more. And uh, I have to say that the Israel-Palestine debate is one of those debates that is making the Foreign Affairs Council of European Union also to split because there are different positions and different views. What has been good is that uh, uh, European Union is not only talking to Palestinians, but we have had also a very constructive and good dialogue recently with Israel. We have been talking to former foreign minister and prime minister, Mr. Lapid, I think, who was very reasonable in his statements and so forth. Of course, the government was complicated construction, the previous government. And of course, we might see now with uh, Netanyahu coming back to, to power, something that uh, will repeat the history, probably, on these issues. We have to look carefully, what are the new steps that can be taken? But also, European Union, unfortunately, European Union member states have been divided on this question.
1: Minister, could I end with one last question about big power relations, increasing friction among major powers, the shadow that casts over a lot of world affairs? So, obviously, the relationship between the US, to some degree, Europe and China, notwithstanding the more constructive tone of President Biden's meeting with his Chinese counterpart with Xi Jinping in Bali just this week. Russia, of course, pretty much a pariah in Western capitals. So, if you look back at the post Cold War period with this hindsight, Do you think Western capitals in the sort of unipolar moment during the 1990s, the early 2000s, do you think they might have done things differently? I mean, not necessarily to apportion blame, but could a different approach earlier maybe have brought us to a different place today?
0: Well, uh, looking backwards, what could have been done in a different way, of course, the 1990s in Russia comes to my mind. And it was a time when we had an opportunity to see... uh, more freedoms, more civil society movements, uh, more democratic uh, tendencies in Russia. Uh, of course, following the Gorbachev time, following the uh, Yeltsin's policy and, and so forth. And the uh, issue that I'm thinking afterwards uh, very often is, um, could we have been supporting the democratic movement in even in a better way in Russia, taking also into account uh, uh, suffering of the ordinary people of the economic recession, economic bad years in Russia, because for many ordinary people, when they in Russia think back to 1990s, it was a time of uh, very desperate uh, economic situation in families, uh, shortage in shops and so forth, and uh, turning From socialism to market economy was not definitely smooth in Russia. It also created the oligarch economy, which has not been very helpful uh, in developing Russia towards the market economy. So this is something that I, I think we should learn our lesson from that time and also understand the many ordinary citizens' opinion of the 1990s in Russia, that it was not so luxurious time for them as it probably was for Western Europe, when the Berlin Wall collapsed, and the Baltic countries got their freedom back and, and so forth, we of course remember those years in other ways, so understanding at least the Russian mood of ordinary citizens from from that past period is very important, and maybe also our pessimism with China, which I mentioned earlier that we saw China as a source of problems, overpopulation uh, desperate economic situation desperate environmental situation we should maybe also understand the chinese mood that they feel that they have overcome major major problems so while we are with a good reason criticizing china on, on of certain aspects we should also probably recognize the progress that has been made there and i think also to understanding the the history and differences in the history would uh, better make us to understand what's going on at the moment and how we could create a better understanding to solve the future problems including the huge problems of climate change, huge problems of environmental degradation that we have to face together with all these continents and all the countries. Thank you.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Thank you very much to Finnish Foreign Minister, Pekka Haavisto for spending so much time with us, sharing his insights. Thank you also, a big shout out to his team at the Finnish Foreign Ministry, especially to Tony Sandel, who really helped set things up. For all of Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, on Russian foreign policy, on European security, on all the other crises that we talked about today, and much more, check out our website, crisisgroup.org can also follow us on twitter well, for now at least at crisis group thanks to our producers kevin murphy heiko schaub and thanks of course as usual to all of our listeners please do get in touch podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions suggestions or concerns if you like the show please do say something nice about us give us a positive rating or review and i very much hope that you'll join us again Normally, being Life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your
1: first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When
0: you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.